the virus doesn't really care about if you're homeless or if you're not. If you get infected, you get infected. And if you're infected, you could spread it. And if you're asymptomatic, you can spread it. Were we given accommodations to protect the homelessness? No. We were given accommodations to protect society, to protect community. Uh, were we given accommodations to help us, you know, move or transition out homelessness? No. <laughs> we were giving, we were giving accommodations to protect the community, the society, Australians, hopefully the world. And a lot of people understood that and they, they didn't think that it was going to, you know, lead to anything except, you know, the opportunity to maybe control the virus. Well, I've been in three establishments. I was in, at first I was in a, a three-star hotel and it was fine. I, I, there wasn't any cooking in the room. You had a microwave. The salvos would come by and drop off meals. You were, weren't supposed to go or I, maybe the, the policies were you stayed, but I, I didn't stay. I, I'd go to sleep. I'd get up. I'd take a shower and I would, you know, walk out the door and go to salvos and have breakfast and then, you know, go to the library or go to an open area where I could, I could get some stuff done on the internet. Uh, and then I would just return at night. How would you describe the environment in the accommodation? Did people get along? Was there any violence? Did you feel safe? Well, at the, at the three star, I felt safe. Again, I was, <laughs> it actually motivated me to do other things, to actually take a good look at my life and, and see what I could do to change it, where I could change my environment, where I could take a shower or when I wanted to sleep, when I wanted to watch TV, when I wanted to eat, when I wanted to. Uh, being homeless, you, you just have to adjust your schedule to everyone else's schedule. If you want to take a shower, well, there are places you can take a shower, and if you don't get there in time, then you're not going to take a shower. So you have to adjust your schedule to to them or to the services. Whereas, you know, in a hotel, I could take a shower when I wanted to. I could microwave food when I wanted to. I could watch a TV program when I wanted to. You could watch these things and things that that you usually take for granted in your life if you're not homeless. So, yeah, it was it was great, that first experience. And then they, they actually moved me into uh, what I considered a, a, a halfway house. Whereas no one could come see you, you had to eat at a certain time, you had to, um, you had, you, you couldn't have any challenges to rules that, that you thought didn't make any sense because then you were, you know, being belligerent or you were being confrontational and, you know, do what I say. And it's just like, well, wait a minute, this, doesn't make any sense and then you know you had to you had room inspections and you know it was it was i was like whoa <laughs> i'm like wait a minute all right no this is probably not what i want and and then you you've had to deal with not only certain personalities but then of, of employees but then you had to deal with the fact that this person just got out of jail or this person has mental issues and, and they're not being really serviced. And so it, it got to the point where 
I would compare it to the Salvation Army when I stayed there at 614 at night. But the problem was, at Salvation Army, you could sit around and you could suss out and you can figure out who you might want to interact with. Whereas at this place, everybody was just thrown in there and no matter what happened, you had to deal with this. All right. And it was... It was good in a sense where you had your own room so you could go to your room and shut your door and you didn't have to deal with the craziness. All right. Whereas at the Salvation Army, it was an open environment and you really need, you really needed to establish friendships and relationships there and then determine how to make that work in that environment. Whereas at this halfway house, you kind of had a room. So, you know, you didn't have to do that. So, you could go to your room whenever things got intense or if you wanted, if you weren't getting along with the employees and you could just go to your room and not have to deal with them. I, I didn't pay for anything. All right. Um, originally, they placed me in the three star and they said, we'll work it out. All right. And so, um, as that began to, uh, uh, mature and it went along, I was like, okay. So it was something like $19 a day or something like that. And I was trying to figure out, okay, well, I like taking a shower when I want. I like doing all these things. And, and it was, okay, well, how do I, how do I make this happen? And I used to, uh, tutor kids. I have, a couple degrees, and I thought, you know what, I'll just tutor. But how are you going to tutor with uh, COVID nineteen restrictions? I can't do that. And so I was, I was trying to figure out how to, how to make money along the path of okay, let's let's get out of homelessness. Can you have skills? You can do this. Let's just get out of homelessness, and then you can go on and do what you want and rejoin society and pay taxes and blah 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 blah. All right. Now their direction was okay. Let's get you on you know, social services, let's get you the doll, let's get you these other things. And, and in order to do that, I had to do certain things. I had to get my passport. I had to get my ID. I had to get all these things that I had, I had left, I had lost or they were stolen or, or I didn't have in order to go down that path. And so I'd seen a lot of people that were on the doll and I was like, wow, I really, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it and I'm just going to get out of it because to me getting on the dull it was like a drug addiction all right and and I say this after you know years out here on the streets and looking at my friends that have addictions and looking at my friends that that have uh, mental challenges it's they give you just enough money to stay in trouble <laughs> Not enough to get out of trouble all right. So if you're depressed and, you know, you need that hit, you're not going to buy food. You're going to you're going to buy that drug. All right. I mean, if you're if you're having an episode, um, you're not going to, you know, go to the doctor and say, give me a shot. You're going to there's plenty of shots out there. There are plenty of drugs out there so you can self-medicate. You're going to spend that money to self-medicate. All right. And I'm like, wow, this isn't really doing any good from my perspective i look at them okay well you're just giving them money to your to keep them enabled where maybe 
you know, maybe you give them money and you give them a number to call, or maybe you put them in a certain location where you can build friendships and you can build bonds and you can build these relationships that will be crucial to helping you stay out of your current situation. I don't, I don't see the dull as doing that. I see the dull as just enabling you to stay in your current situation and not giving you any other avenues out of it. So, to me, it was like, okay, I'll just tutor, I'll figure out Zoom, and I'll get a bunch of people, and that's what I did. I, I actually was, I was tutoring four kids online in math, and then the Savills moved me from the hotel because obviously I wasn't paying, and and maybe they had to pay, and they moved me into one of their facilities that didn't have the internet, and and they told me, hey, I would have the internet, and so. Essentially, what I was doing is I was taking the steps to get myself out of it and go get into because it was great. It was a great opportunity for me, and it, it allowed me a lot of a lot of self reflection, saying, "Hey, get out of this, right?" And so I started to do that. And when they transitioned me, they didn't provide me with wireless internet, and they didn't provide me with all this stuff. And and they told me that that it would be done. And so I essentially lied to the people that I was I was trying to help and told them that yeah I'll I'll have I'll have I'm going on vacation I'll be back you know and and uh then I had to two weeks later I had to say hey listen I I can't get the internet cuz you couldn't go outside you couldn't go to the library you couldn't go to the places where you could have the internet and yeah so I lost that and lost that credibility and then and then it took essentially 5 months for them to get wireless into the to the facility that I was in and 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 that didn't work out too well because you know you still couldn't go out and do other things you couldn't go in and so during that period I I was trying to think I was still in that mode I was like okay you're you're that's just one strike no problem go to the next what's your next solution and and so I I designed this tool where uh, because I have a hip issue and I can't essentially put on my sock. And so I designed a tool to wash in between my toes. All right. And then I went around to everybody in the facility and, and talked to them. And at first they said, Oh, that's a weapon. And I'm like, it's not a weapon. It's, it's a, a it's a rod, you know, and, and I'm using this rod to wash in between my toes and to get the calluses off my feet. And I think I could, I think I could turn this into a tool and, 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 and I can get, I can sell it. I can market it. All right. And so I was really excited about it. And so I didn't have any money. So I was running around the city as, as I would, Go and I would look for the the products that I could use to to improve this tool, and so uh, it's interesting enough. I was improving the tool and building it, and talking to the nurse that was at the facility about it, and talking to other people about it. And there was a, a transition because uh, the the caseworker wanted me to do all these things to get in line to get the dole so they could pay the nineteen dollars a a day for me. And, and I was thinking, well, you know, yeah, that's great, but I also am going to do this too. And, and whoever gets there first will, will be the winner. Right. You know? Um, and so, uh, in talking with, uh, the team leader 
because I had a conflict with the caseworkers, and that's another thing. They gave me like five different caseworkers over a certain amount of time. And then to, to, to explain your story to each one of the caseworkers, it's like, Jesus, I got to do this again. I don't trust you in the first place, and I don't trust you, but you want to know everything about me. It's, it's, that's information, you know, asymmetry. All right. I know everything about you, but you know nothing about me. You know, it's like, come on, you want me to trust? I'm getting tired of this, right? And so just leave me alone and let me go out and I'll have this done and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, I, I met with the, the team leader and she said, she said, Ken, okay, listen, we'll get you, we'll help you along the way to a certain point and then you're going to have to decide what you're going to do. And I'm like, okay, listen, I realize that I'm not your average person. And if you just give me some leeway, then I'll have this worked out. And I was working it. I mean, I, I talked to occupational therapists. I talked to to everybody that was anybody. Um, people told me about, uh, I think it's NDIS, and I looked at, you know, applying for a license there, and I talked to some of the services about, hey, you know, I got this thing, and it's great. And they're like, oh, yeah, we might be able to finance you to get that, you know, approved. And I'm like, yeah, I'll give you a, I'll give you a percentage. And you know, all this other stuff. And then they dropped the bomb on me. They said, you know, what you have is a weapon. And we're kicking you out. <laughs> You're listening to episode three of Homeless in Hotels. Health services and peer voices in the COVID-19 pandemic. Coming up, we'll hear how the law affected the homeless community when it was illegal to be on the street during Melbourne's strict lockdowns. We'll learn about people's housing options after their hotel stay and hear what our support workers and peers have to say as they reflect overall on the hotel accommodation program. We hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is titled, The Unknown is the Hardest Part. Several of my friends or people in the community, they did refuse and they were fined. I know of at least two people that have over... I would say $5,000 in fines because they they were out and about when they should have been in and secure. A lot of people that I knew got a lot of fines, even ones that were in motels and they were out shopping or doing whatever, they'd still get a fine because yeah, the police just didn't care. They'd tell them that I'm in a motel just after a day. They don't care. It's just more money for them, I guess. But, yeah, a lot of people who are still in motels got a lot of fines, so. Do you feel like people were profiled because of, you know, like not looking like the middle class person out doing their, like, two hours? Of- yes, definitely. Uh, it happens all the time. So, yeah, it's... It, I wouldn't like to say it's sort of discrimination or... Um, but they do pick on the certain ones where, just like you said, they don't look up to their standards, I guess, or look at least like a normal person then, yeah, they definitely were targeted because it's not hard to tell a difference between a person who uses drugs and a person who doesn't. 
So, yeah, they were kind of able to point them all out easy, you know, with the way we dress or the way we act, the way we walk or because a lot of us hang out in groups on the street or walk with groups or hang around certain areas. Yeah, that as well. It's just really the way we dress and the way we look. That's the reason why they choose us. For people who were sleeping rough, I think, you know, they were just more likely to be fined, obviously, because they were, because they live their lives in public as a result of sleeping rough. They're just more likely to come into contact with the law in that way. So I think we definitely did see that. And I think the other thing is that, you know, many people who are sleeping rough or staying in the hotels might have more visibility to the police for a variety of different reasons. So might be, you know, their presentation or drug and alcohol issues or mental health issues, which does, I think, make them more likely to be to be picked up for non-compliance with restrictions. And I think that does come down to police targeting and enforcement. I mean, from a personal you know, perspective, when I went out on walks sometimes myself during the pandemic and was in, you know, certain inner city gardens like Edinburgh Gardens and things like that, and you could see lots of people clearly in breach of restrictions, it was, yeah, I I didn't see the police approaching or finding people in those kinds of spaces. And so you have to kind of ask yourself why that isn't happening. And why there seemed to be these certain pockets where there really wasn't much of a police presence. So my name's Gemma. I'm a lawyer at the Homeless Law Team at Justice Connect. So essentially, we're a specialist community legal centre that provides assistance to people who are homeless or at risk of being homeless. So at its most strict, you know, there were only four reasons we were allowed to be outside of our home or the the place that that, that we were staying. You had to be wearing a mask. There was a curfew as well in place. And there was the 5K radius that you couldn't go outside of. And I think for people who were sleeping rough or who were in the hotels, I think some of those restrictions like the ones that I mentioned coming up, the masks and also being out and about without one of the valid reasons for being out. I think they were some of the most common ones to come up. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I think, you know, even if people were in the hotels, it's not ideal long-term. And so people didn't have kitchen facilities. They didn't have, there weren't communal spaces necessarily. And it was quite isolating perhaps for people who were used to having quite a bit of community around them. So I think that made it harder to comply with those restrictions. So the powers came from a Victorian act called the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. So the state of emergency was declared under that act. And then once that state of emergency was in place, there's a number of really broad powers that can be put in place through the chief health officer, and they can then be enforced by authorised officers. What could you say about the kinds of fines or the kinds of penalties that people are accruing? I mean, we had someone say that he knew someone who ended up with about $5,000 worth of because he was sleeping rough and kept getting knocked by the police. That's actually really easy to end up with that amount of fines because, you know, some of them were about, you know, 
twelve $1,200 for one fine. So, yeah, that could absolutely happen quite easily for someone. Yeah, I think the key fines that we did see were the going out without a mask on or being out outside of those valid reasons for being out. And some around the breach of the breach of curfew as well. Well, that was in place. That definitely came up. And yeah, I'd say that amount of fines, that's not a surprising amount. You know, some clients will come through just with one fine, but it's more common that they'd, that they'd have a, a, a couple. And often hand in hand, you'd have the mask one and a fine for being out um, without a valid excuse. That'd be about $1,400 because 12, it's about 200 for the uh, not wearing a mask. And then the other thing I guess to note is, you know, if you're not do, if you don't take any action on these fines, they actually continue to accrue additional fees as they move through the enforcement stages. So they actually get larger for people as well. And that can be, you know, really overwhelming and actually be a barrier in itself because it seems like this huge amount of money that they can't possibly, you know, begin to deal with. The fact that that fine was such a significant fine compared to, you know, fines that we'd normally see that might be around one or two hundred dollars. That twelve hundred dollar fine is just huge. Sarah, what can you tell us about the Hotels to Home project? It's Homelessness to Home. It's a program that was funded as a result of the hotel accommodation. And for the most part, it's a model that we've been asking for in the sector. It's a housing first model, which means that um, anyone who's been experiencing homelessness, particularly for a long period of time, is offered a house and a support worker at the same time. They're being offered accommodation. Some of it is public housing. Some of it is leased properties. People who get into the program will have 18 months stay and a support worker for all that time if they'd like it. Then in that 18 months, that gives the support worker time to work with the tenant about what their long-term plans are. So is public housing going to be the most appropriate exit option, then there's time to put in a public housing application and there is a new category of public housing emergency management which is now available for people who are in the Homelessness to a Home program. So it's a model that we would advocate and one of the advantages of leased properties is that people get, get a bit more choice about where they live and I think that's really important. A lot of people said to us, don't, don't just give me a house anywhere, you know, the the community that we're in and connected to is as important as the house. So it's a really positive initiative. It's been 1,100 packages are available. So in the West, there are just under 300 packages. And as I said, we probably accommodate 2,000 households. So it's not available for everyone, but it is being targeted to those people who've had the most chronic experiences of homelessness. So if if they want that response, then there's a period of much more stability than we've been able to offer in the past. And it will give us a chance 
to work out if that is a good response, you know, to prove if it, if it is a good response, we can keep advocating for more, more properties, more support. How much of a game changer is housing first? I think it's huge. I mean, it, it's the model we would all advocate for in the homelessness sector. It's the model allied services would advocate for. How does someone stabilise anything in their life if they haven't got a stable <laughs> home? So for us, it makes absolute sense that the first thing you do is house someone, that once they're safe and they know they've got a period of stability, then they can be looking at other things in their life. They can look at getting a job. They can look at engaging with a mental health service. They can look at ha- having more stability for the kids. So I think it's a huge, huge model, hugely good model, yeah. The rent is covered through the program. In some head leasing programs, the rent goes down over a period of time. I know in the family violence sector, for instance, women were offered leased properties and over a period of a year they eventually took over the lease. The housing market is so problematic in Melbourne that there is no way single people, and it's largely single people getting into the program, could take over those leases there's no way single people are going to be able to take over those rents. But it's a bit of breathing space to then work out, well, what is going to be their long-term housing option. And you said, for example, community housing organisations or other charities might be the head leaser in these properties? Yes. Yes. So they've been allocated funding from the government, but it's their job to go out and find the lease properties. It's a program that rolled out very quickly. So the Funding that's available for them to do that is not brilliant and some of the subsidies um, for them to set up properties and manage damages and so on, the budget's not very high. So it's going to be a very complex job for the community housing providers to manage that. And to have to find so many properties so quickly in a market that's already tight is challenging. The rollout of the properties is slower than we would have hoped and services are having to employ new support staff, so we're still in the very early stages. One thing that I've been a bit disappointed about is that we weren't able to give people the certainty that they were being referred into the program earlier. I would have hoped that the program guidelines were released early enough that we could have prioritised for the packages and let people know several months ago that they were going to get a package. So even if they have to stay in the hotel until their property comes on board, they would have known that that housing was coming and that they didn't have to fret, they weren't going to have to move again. Once the shutdown ended, the funds available to hold people in hotels really dropped. So around Christmas, a lot of people were moved out of hotels and we did try and keep a list of people who would be prioritised for the packages, uh, whether or not they were in the hotels. But it has been harder and harder to make contact with some of those people. So people who would have been eligible are missing out because we haven't had the money to hold them in the hotels through that period of time. Because the hotels are so expensive, the packages were prioritised to people who are still in hotels initially and now they're starting to look at allocating them to people who were in the hotels but who've since left. So people that aren't into homes yet and are not in the hotels, where are they? They are very sadly, many of them are back in the private rooming houses. They're back living on the streets and they're back couch surfing. We had very high hopes that the pandemic would just highlight how many people don't have a safe place to live 
and it would generate responses. I have to say, the the Labor government has allocated $5.3 billion to build more long-term housing, and that's the biggest allocation that anyone has made to social housing. But even so, it's only meeting about a quarter of the need. So it, it it's $5.3 billion over four years. I think we actually need to build 6,000 public ho- housing properties a year for 10 years to even meet the numbers of people on the public housing waiting lists. Uh, unfortunately, the federal government, which which co-funds homelessness and housing services, hasn't put in any funding. So if we could get the federal government to match that state government commitment, we'd be a long way towards being able to provide housing for people who are experiencing homelessness. And to be totally honest with you, when they offer it now, because I'm out of the hotel, I've been offered it a couple of times, and it was for short stays. And and what they don't understand is if I if I'm securing where I am, you offer me oh hey COVID we have a COVID outbreak and we're we have a cluster that we have to control so get back into the hotel, and it's like well okay but is that it? <laughs> put me in a hotel for five days and then I lose my security of my squad. I come back and I can't sleep there anymore because somebody else is there and now I have to roam around and find another place because you want me to stay in a hotel to reduce uh, the amount of you know spread. I'm like, no, I'm not going to go and you know I I can manage this by myself and you know I'll wear my mask and I'll use the sanit- sanitation that you've placed around the streets and I'll you know be aware of the distance that I need to be between people that may or may not have covid and I'll do the same and I and I'll go back to my place at night where I can sleep you just can't Take them off the streets and put them in a hotel, then after this, and chuck them back on the streets. It's just let them play with their minds more, you know. And, yeah. That's where the government's got to, you know, understand where they come from, how they feel, you know. You can't treat us like that, or treat them like that, you know. Just knowing the next step, knowing, so like I said, a lot of people have just been put straight back onto the streets because there hasn't been that, what are we going to do next? We've taken everybody off. We've given them that safety, that shelter. What what can we do now to progress that, progress them instead of just throwing them back out where they were? which sadly is what's happened because there hasn't been any form of, yeah, exit plan, I guess. Like, you know, I know a lot of people that have been put into into homes, which is great. And at the moment there's a new program starting called Hotels to Homes, which is based around, I believe, everyone in the hotels, which would make sense by the name. But again, you know, we've been put on a list. When do we know? When do we find out? When... 
it's a whole waiting. Like a lot of the time, we just keep our stuff packed. We've got boxes of st- stuff and bags packed because you don't know when you get, get get that call being like, you're done. We can't fund it anymore. And that's the scariest part. Like, you just don't know. The unknown. The unknown is the scariest part of where am I going to, am I going to have a place next week? Am I going to be able to have a bed somewhere warm to shower, to to eat? You just don't know until... And I think that was maybe the communication side of it could have been done a bit better instead of saying, yeah, 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 sweet, it'll happen. Yep, yep, we'll get onto it. Yep, sweet, sweet, sweet. I think maybe communication and, you know, a bit of reality might have been a better way to go about it instead of putting everyone in these places and being like, yep, we fixed homelessness, we're amazing. And in saying that, if they can fix homelessness during this pandemic, why the fuck can't we fix it during normal life? Why the are we waited for a global pandemic to stop the country before we have even thought about or done anything? It, it happened overnight. They took everyone off the street overnight. Why couldn't that have happened 10 years ago? Why can't it happen tomorrow? Now that it's out of sort of that big lockdown pandemic thing, it, they're all really slack. They're not really helping anyone. If yeah, they're, they're just I, I've called up so many places. I can say at least four or five, and I call them up every day. And I have not had a motel in the last three weeks. They're just really slack now that they think that they've housed all these people or put all these people last year that they don't really need to help out the people who do need help now. Like they're honestly really slack. I haven't been able to get a motel at once for the last three weeks and I'm only 21 and I tell them that every time. So they're kind of not really, yeah, bothering or they don't get back to you with their phone calls. You can leave a message and yeah, we'll get back to you. It doesn't happen. I ended up I probably end up calling back at least 10 times a day. Yeah, we'll call you back. It doesn't happen. So, yeah, that's, yeah, it's pretty shit now. So, yeah. After the pandemic was done, they just let us all back out on the streets anyway. So, I don't know if it was, it wasn't for us. So, like, maybe it was for us. Like, get them off, get them all in the hotels and, you know. So, I'm confused. So, I think one of the main stereotypes around people who are homeless and use drugs is that it's their drug using that made them homeless. And actually, the reverse is true. So this is something that is really clearly shown in research, in multiple pieces of research, including research done in Melbourne over the last few decades, that becoming homeless puts enormous pressure on people and actually can drive them into more heavier drug use as a coping strategy. I think that, I think that's a really important thing to debunk for people. You know, oh, they're homeless and and they deserve it because they chose to use drugs. It was like, no, that didn't actually work that way. You know, anyone can can become homeless too. Like, the difference between having a home and becoming homeless can be really quick, and it can happen to anyone. And it's not, um, yeah, it's no, it's, it's no. Um, I, I guess the part of the stereotype is is a bit of a, a moral judgment of people who are homeless, and that's just completely out of order and not not the truth at all. Look, I think that I think there's the the general lessons and issues which homelessness and AOD were sort of always aware of 
but that we needed to explain to the rest of the medical services and other services about trauma-based care and that we're dealing with, you know, groups, you know, overwhelmingly people who are facing homelessness issues have traumas going on. And unless you understand those, unless you provide services that can deal with those and workers who are trained in how to deal with those, then you're going to end up with a lot more problems. I think what the hotels showed was that we can actually house homeless people and that there's just there's a lack of political will to do so and that these things need to be organised in a much more long-term sort of way. And I think that that's another really important lesson in that. But I also think in some ways the AOD and homelessness sector have a lot which we can teach the general population about managing COVID. So, you know, so with COVID, we saw, you know, extremes of thought, which, you know, vary from, you know, we need to shut everything down now. We need to just, you know, no services should be operating. You know, everyone should just stay at home, lock their doors and, and the virus will die. And then, you know, conversely, you see the people who are just like, oh, you know, we'll just keep the economy running as business as usual. You know, in the AOD sector, we're, you know, I guess in this sort of unique situation that we do primarily talk about things in relation to harm reduction. So it's that understanding that, yes, not everyone is going to be able to isolate all the time. How do we make that safer for people? You know, things like mask wearing, social distancing measures. I mean, it's, it's bizarre that you have these constant changes in regulations so that, you know, only Six months ago, we were allowed up to a hundred people in our house, and now you can barely have anyone in your house unless you're part of a, a bubble. You know, and before that, you know, there was a time when you couldn't have anyone in your house, and that led to all sorts of isolation. So the fact that you can just move from these extremes rather than going, well, what's safe numbers to be sustainable? That's something that we learn, in, you know, when we're dealing with drug use. You know, how do we, you know, you can't mitigate all risks of drug use, but you can make drug use safer through only using with other people, through, you know, having, tasting through things like safe injecting rooms, etc. These are all harm reduction measures. And I think that actually a lot of what people need to learn, people should have learned through COVID is how to engage in harm reduction as a health, as a general health measure. And that is to, you know, just something that wasn't done. Yeah, I guess I'd just like the general public to understand the sheer complexity of how those presentations are and how people end up in those situations and that everybody's situation is different and, you know, people haven't always chosen to live like that or, you know, nobody deserves to. But I guess just with, like, to be able to look at homelessness, yeah, with the complexity that it is and to be able to, yeah, know that every situation is individual and there's not one key solution for every person. And, yeah, I think the hotel accommodation proves that, like, the four walls is literally not one solution for every person to feel safe or to improve if, if things aren't going so well. It doesn't always work like that. And I guess just that, yeah, we're, we're all a lot closer to being in that situation than what we are to being in any other situation. You know, the homelessness picture looked really different in COVID 
the kinds of people who you're working with and who you're supporting doesn't necessarily look how you might have imagined that it would be or how, you know, stigma might have created about the kind of people that you might be working with. It's all different kinds of people. And, yeah, it's just a very complex situation, I think. And in terms of, like, what would we change about the hotel response, I think, I mean, I think ideally rather than going into this temporary, you know, emergency hotel accommodation, long ago we would have actually been providing enough social housing and support for people who need it so we wouldn't have actually gotten to this point where we do have the numbers in the homeless population. Uh, So I think, yeah, it would have been preferred that instead of going into that temporary ACOM, that we'd been able to put people into more long-term social housing with support. What I would like the community to know is just how many people there are who don't have a safe home. And I would like people to know that when we want to find the money to provide some level of housing, we can. And that not finding safe housing for people who don't have it doesn't benefit those individuals and it doesn't benefit the community. And that we need to see this as an opportunity to be a more compassionate community and understand just how many people there are who don't have a safe place to live in Melbourne and that we can't rely on trying to put square pegs in round holes. We can't try and create appropriate responses out of services that are not designed for those responses. We we need to get ahead of this and actually build appropriate housing so that if we have another pandemic, we, we don't have the same situation of trying to ma- madly find inappropriate places for people to stay. They're not as bad as what they think they are, you know. They're, you know, surely got problems. We've all got problems, you know. We've just got some harder problems than what they have, you know. It's not our fault, but, you know, just be more kind and generous towards them, you know. They're just human beings, just like you and me, just doing a little bit rough. Well, they wanted to keep the streets looking clean or us not walking around. And, yeah, say, hey, look at the streets. Melbourne's nice and clean now. I mean, a lot of these people, they need help. They need help more than you know, Joe Blow. And they don't get the support, then they feel bad. But if they get support, they actually do go forward. Like, I was, I was going backwards until I found the support. And one support worker will help you and touch you in with another support. Then you've got two support workers or three, four, and then you've got like a, a network of your what you've got to do. And then you've got things to do every day. Hey, I've got to do this today, like this today. <laughs> you know, and it makes you like get up and do something. And you know, get out of your little bunker, little hole and go forward. Whereas I'll be there for another three or four days just sleeping away. I feel like what I'd want everyone to know was like you see, you know, government will put out or the news will put out, the homeless, it's fixed. We've taken everyone off the street. Yeah, sweet, cool. But imagine what it's, no one knew what it was like in there. No one knew 
how, how hard it was. No one knew how, what was actually happening. They just thought it was fixed. Sweet. We don't see any homeless people on the street. Wicked. It's all, no. It's the absolute opposite. That's just sweeping it under a rug. And I think that's where we're at now. If I didn't have my partner earlier, I would have lost myself. Like if it wasn't, if she wasn't there by my side and wasn't there to hold my hand too, like, you know, we both went down the bad paths and we've seen, you know, shit that we didn't want to see. But if she wasn't there and I wasn't there, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to you using the radio. Like, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here with wasn't for because my life's been like hell since I was 12 and she's the, the only thing that's come, you know, she's the only thing that's been good in my life. Like, that's, you know, so I've been with her for the last two years and, yeah, we've been doing it hard for the last two years, been in the streets because, like, my drug news got us kicked out on the show. And so, yeah, now I'm trying to, re- you know, say thank you to her for being by my side though, those, this whole, you know, nine months of the lockdown. So, yeah, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here. And I wouldn't, yeah. Like, so I like to say thank you to my partner, Lira. I love you. You're mine. <laughs>